0: Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to New Hope Community Church. I'm so glad that you're here. I would like to invite you to turn with me to the book of Daniel, chapter 1. Daniel, chapter 1. Before we get into that, uh, I just want to plug uh, quickly uh, our groups, our small groups. We believe at New Hope that uh, the best way to grow spiritually, the best way to go closer to God is to connect with each other relationally, um, and we've had some great uh, startups over the past couple of weeks. Uh, we have a Monday night group studying the uh, Jesus' interactions with people. We have a Tuesday night group that's going through Ephesians. Um, we have a Monday evening group that is going up to Grace Fellowship at Timonium to, to the Iron Men ministry up there. Uh, We did that for the first time. That's going to continue for the next nine weeks. Um, And then uh, the the ladies, uh, several ladies, are are gathering for for prayer and for fellowship here at the church on Wednesday nights at 7.30. So I would strongly encourage you to check out one of those groups. um, Because again, you can't grow spiritually unless you connect relationally. We are beginning this morning a sermon series on the book of Daniel. And this uh, series that we're going to call is, uh, we're going to call this series Bridges to Babylon, which you might know is uh, um, is kind of a Rolling Stones reference. One of their albums was called Bridges to Babylon. And I like the phrase, um, actually the first time that I saw, I saw the Stones twice, uh, and, and uh, the first time I saw them was this tour. Uh, and I'll get to why I like that phrase in a few minutes, but um, in addition to that, you'll, you'll notice that, that all of the, the sermon titles are actually Stones references, but that, that's really just for my fun, you know. Um, most of them like song titles and stuff. This is actually in keeping with New Hope tradition. Uh, when we studied Ezekiel, uh, Jason named all of the sermons after Led Zeppelin's song, so I just thought I'd follow in his footsteps. Um, and today's sermon is titled Exile on Main Street, and here's why. Daniel chapter 1, starting at the beginning. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Judah being the southern kingdom of, uh, of of the area of Israel, the promised land of the kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Note that phrase, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, and with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to where? The land of Shinar. That's going to be important. Remember that. He brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, um, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Uh, Then the king commanded Ash. Oh, no, we're going to get that in a minute. Okay, so let's back up. We're going to be in Daniel for the next few months. So I want to take a moment to give us a context for where we are in, like, the story of the Bible. First of all, did you know that the Bible has one story? Of course, the Bible has lots of stories, right? But if we're going to understand uh, it the way we should, if we're going to understand the Bible the way we should, it's important that we understand the one overarching story of the entire Bible. The big word for this, and if you if you, memorize, if you just if you learn this word, I would love to hear somebody tell me, say this word to me, like in a Bible study or something. The big word for this is meta-narrative. Uh, a Bible verse, like name any Bible verse, and one of the first questions that you'll want to ask yourself is: where does this verse fit into the meta-narrative of Scripture? So, like for instance. Questions that you'd ask and applications that you'd make from Leviticus, for example, which is the third book of the Bible, are completely different than questions and applications that you'd make from the words of Jesus or Paul's letters. You with me so far? For my money, the story of the Bible can be summed up in seven sections or episodes. Allow me to go through them quickly. In the beginning, always good to start at the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So episode one is creation. When God created the cosmos, he did so in a dynamic fashion. See, creation wasn't like perfect in the sense that it was complete and done. It, it was instead, it, it, was, it was good in that it was always meant to continue to grow. As Amy and Cindy talked about a few weeks ago, God's creation is alive and his desire is that it would beat, the creation would beat in the same rhythm of the heart of its creator God. So God has always designed um, that his creation walk in step with him and and that is nowhere and nowhere is that more true than in God's relationship to humanity. When, when God creates men and women in Genesis 1 and 2, he creates them in his image, in the imago Dei, in the image of God. He gives them work to do because he wants them to be co-rulers of this creation alongside of him. He gives them, and this is a really important word too, dominion, a word which implies, implies responsibility, a word that implies ownership. Dominion's different than dominance, right? In, in dominance, we, 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 that we exploit, but in, if we have dominion, we have a responsibility. We, we steward the creation. The image we get in this episode is one of shalom. In Genesis 1 of 2, we see shalom, this word that means harmony with God, serenity, and concord. We might call it peace. The problem is episode 2, which is where this harmony is disrupted, We call this the fall. And this is where sin enters the picture. The word sin means to miss the mark. Sin is what happens when humanity steps out of relationship with God and makes choices that are selfish in nature rather than in cooperation with their creator. Sin is what happens when we get out of step with God's heartbeat. And the thing about sin is that sin manifests itself in various different ways. See, we see Adam and Eve break a simple rule which immediately snowballs into lies and blame shifting. And then we see Cain take the life of his own brother because of jealousy. In the story of Noah and the ark, we see this this principle that that sin has spread like cancer. And that even if God wipes away all the people of the earth and leaves only a a few, one family of the holiest family that he can find, it doesn't take long for sin to spread again. So, so, something has to be done. Sin is a real problem that disconnects the harmony that we were supposed to have with God. Something has to be done. And in Genesis 11, we get this story where a group of people, a group of people in Genesis 11, they settle where? In, in, in the land of Shinar. And they build something called the Tower of Babel, which is also a tower. Uh, which is a tower that could reach the heavens. See, humanity wanted to make a name for itself, and it forgets God, and it becomes so consumed with its own selfish desires that it forgets who it was created to be. We forget who we were created to be. Humanity begins to realize that empire is possible. And the problem with empires is that we so often, it's so easy to forget who really is on the throne. So, at this point in the story, what do we see God do? He climbs on a cross and dies for our sins. No, that's not the next page after Genesis 11, after the Tower of Babel. No, the next point of the story is God takes a new approach, new approach. He, he, he starts what we might call a, a rescue mission to save the world. Israel is chapter, is episode three. We're getting back to Daniel in a, in a moment, I promise. But for now, it is so important that we look at the start of episode three. Keep a finger in Daniel and turn back with me to uh, Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. This, is, this, this chapter, uh, this, the, these verses are going to be so important as we open up the book of Daniel. Remember, this happens right after the story of the Tower of Babel. Now the Lord, Genesis 12, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go to your country. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. As I said before, this is God starting a rescue mission to save the world. That's what Israel is. And spoil alert, yes, the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of this promise that God made to Abram that day. And I'm getting ahead of myself, but, but here's the point for now. Fundamental to what it means to be a part of God's family is that we are blessed not to the exclusion of others, but for their benefit. We are blessed to be a blessing. Have you ever felt a blessing from God? Have you ever looked into the eyes of your kids and just felt, I, I'm so blessed? Have you ever, like the first time you got a paycheck and you feel like you, you were able to pay a bill with the, with the, the fruit of your own uh, labor And you felt like, I was blessed by God for my ability to do that. Or the first time you ever met a grandkid, one of your own grandkids, and you say, I just feel so blessed. The idea, the reason, what we're called to do with that blessing is to reflect blessing back into the world. We are blessed in order to be a blessing to others. From Abram, who later became Abraham, came the Hebrews. And the people of Israel who were called out by God to be his chosen people, people to show the world what it looks like to be in God's family. They were supposed to be a people who reached back to the, to the shalom. They were supposed to reach back and rediscover that episode one harmony with God. Thing is, life's a journey, not a destination. So the rest of Genesis is, an, is a story of the patriarchs and these Hebrew fathers. And we get the stories of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And we, get them, we see them stumbling their way towards being the people that God created them to be. In time, the people of Israel find themselves enslaved in the land of Egypt. And they cry out to God and God sends a deliverer named Moses who leads them out of slavery and eventually into the promised land that God spoke of to Abraham. A nation is established, first run by influential leaders named Judges, called Judges. And then in time, kings rise to power. The first three kings of Israel were David, or I'm sorry, Saul, David, and Solomon. All of these men have very good moments along the way, but in time, each one of them, the power corrupts them. And they turn to other gods, and they begin to treat people like objects rather than seeing them seeing the image of God in them rather than seeing the Imago Dei in them and treating them as such. You see here's the the problem with with where Israel went is that the ones who were once oppressed have now become the oppressors. And what they forgot, the, the the basic thing that they forgot is that fundamental to what it means to be a part of God's family is that we are blessed, not to the exclusion of others, but for their benefit. We are blessed to be a blessing. And because they forgot this, the kingdom is split into the northern kingdom, which they refer to as Israel, and the southern kingdom called Judah, which is what was referenced at the beginning of Daniel. And because of this idolatry, because of their refusal to stand for things like justice and true worship, the northern kingdom is first conquered by the Assyrian Empire. See your Western Civilization uh, textbooks for more on that. And in time, around 605 B.C., the southern kingdom, along with Jerusalem, along with the temple. The temple was supposed to be the intersection of heaven and earth. Along with the temple, it is besieged by the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar. The Babylonians, they came in. And they sacked Jerusalem, and they ransacked the temple. And we're told in the first few verses of Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar brings the spoils back, where? To the land of Shinar. Back to the land of Shinar, where it seems that evidently empire is very much alive and well. Thus we enter into the fourth episode of our story. Exile. God's people are in exile. Exile. Exile is where everything that you know, everything that has given you identity as a person is robbed from you. Exile is a time of lament. Biblically speaking, it's a time of of poets and, and preachers and prophets and philosophers. The Old Testament, as we know, it included oral tradition from from before this time, but but the Old Testament is actually compiled together during the exile. You see, God wants to remind Israel who they are and what their mission was supposed to be from the start. Exile is a season where where Israel has to wrestle with, with the two most important questions that any human being can ask. Who is God and who am I or who are we? And of course, here's the thing. Exile was brought on, as we see right there at the beginning of Daniel, not by the might and power of the great pagans, but by the almighty hand of God. Exile is a time of lament. It's a time to sing the blues, which is why I thought thinking about the stones was appropriate. Psalm 137 begins this way. It says, by the waters of Babylon... There we sat down and we wept. We sang the blues when we, when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs. And our tormentors mirth. They mocked us saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. You see, exile is a time when you are robbed of everything that you think you know, and you are robbed of, like, we could say it's a time that you are robbed of the songs that you used to sing in order that God might begin a slow process of putting a new song in your heart. Friends, in many ways, we've been in exile these past 18 months. We've sat down and we've wept when thinking about the loss of what we once had and we've mourned at the thought that maybe things will never go back truly to what they were. But, but what we're going to see from our time in the book of Daniel is that our call is, is not to just get grumpy at the state of the world, but be enlivened that even God, that even in this, God will work. This fast past Friday, I quoted uh, Chicago pastor Tim Harlow in our, in our Inu Hope. I quoted this. He says, you know, it's great to ask the Lord to sing workers. We should keep doing that. But we should also remember that each one of us is counted among those workers, counted among God's workers. So we shouldn't only ask the Lord to send somebody else. Oh, Lord, that's, that's awful. You should really do something about that. No, we should also ask him to help us be and fulfill our roles. How might I respond to this exile, to this environment, to this situation, what we're going to see is we're going to see Daniel and his friends do this in incredible ways over the next 10 weeks. The book of Daniel is essentially separated into two parts. The first part is, is where we'll see like heroic tales like Daniel in the lion's den and, you know, Shack and Benny for those with ears to hear. And then the second part is where we're going to see a more the book takes a more apocalyptic flavor, where Daniel has these powerful visions of what God is up to. And when we get to that part, we're going to talk about what, what it means to read prophetic literature responsibly in Scripture. And that prophecy doesn't always mean predicting the future. Most of the time, it means understanding God's reality as it always has been and always will be. So more on that in a few months. For now before we come to the Lord's table, I'd like us to spend just a few closing moments looking at the short story, looking at a short story at the beginning of Daniel chapter 1 about a different table um, that we're going to see. So turn with me back there and and have a look uh, beginning at verse 3. Then the king, Nebuchadnezzar, commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch or the palace master, To bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, I'm sorry, youths, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans, Chaldeans or or the Babylonians. Um, So Nebuchadnezzar, he wants Israel's best and brightest. He wants the royals. He wants the nobles. He wants the educated. He wants the skilled. He wants to take the best of what Israel has to offer. He wants to bring them to Babylon and incorporate them into the court of the king. So let's not beat around the bush here. This is a highly strategic thing that the king is doing. If you want to build an empire... You don't just want to conquer people. You want to influence their culture. Nebuchadnezzar wants to influence the influencers, and he does this by, by bringing these elite young men in order to give them in uh, the king's court experience. See, they're already the best and the brightest. They are already intelligent. But Nebuchadnezzar wants to build on what they already are in order to rebuild them into his own image. He's going to try to naturalize them into Babylonian culture and Babylonian religion. I mean, it's interesting. Look at what's going on here. What Nebuchadnezzar is going to try to do is actually what God behind the scenes is actually going to do with his people in exile. The thing is, God uses a whole different playbook than the empires of this world. And here's the rest of the story quickly. Nebuchadnezzar allows for these young men to eat from the table of the king. Uh, He allows these elite young men to eat from the table of the king. At first glance, this is an outrageously kind way for the king to treat his captives. He gives them the best food. He gives them the finest wine. Babylon was known for its decadence. So this table must have really been something And it's here that that we're introduced to four of these young men specifically. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now those are their Hebrew names, and each of those names means something about God's holy attributes. Uh, Daniel, for instance, means God judges. But the palace master gives our guys all new Babylonian names. Um, uh, Daniel is now uh, Belteshazzar. Hananiah is now Meshach. Michel uh, is now Meshach, and Azariah is now Abednego, so Danny, Rakshak, and Benny. Anyway, the goal here is total indoctrination into the empire, but it's important to note that, that they don't push back on the name changes, at least not as it's recorded. See, Daniel knows how to choose his battles. It's as if they're saying, you know, You could call us whatever you want. We know who we are. And more importantly, we know whose we are. And we know this from what happens next. Daniel resolves not to eat the food given to him from the king's table. Now, why? Because to eat this food would would break some of Israel's food laws, which were precious to the Israelites because these food laws were examples of something that spoke to their identity as people who were a part of God's family. They helped remind the, uh, the people of Israel who they were and whose they were. So Daniel says, no, I will not eat from the table of the king. But it's fascinating the way Daniel goes about doing this. We're told in verse 8 that he resolved not to eat from the king's table, but, but the next thing he does is not start some holy war with the king and make some big show of it. No, he goes to the palace master, and what's the word there? He asked to be allowed not to defile himself. And you and I might see this as a sign of weakness, but actually I think it's holy strategy. And the reason why I think that is because of verse 9. What does it say? It says, And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the palace master. And this is just fantastic. God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the palace master. Oh, I I really, I do feel for you guys. Um, And then Daniel had an opportunity then to, to have favor and compassion in return. The palace master tells Daniel that he's afraid for his life. He says, guys, you know, you're supposed to be eating from the table of the king. And if, if, if you starve yourselves and you look in worse condition than all the other youths, um, the king is going to be furious and, and it's going to be off with my head. So how does Daniel respond? He responds exactly the way God responded to him. He responds with favor and compassion. And he offers the palace master a compromise. He, he offers the palace master a way out. He says, give us 10 days. Give us 10 days where you feed us nothing but vegetables and water, and then compare us to everybody else. So the palace master did it. Uh, evidently, he, had must, he must have had some sort of relationship built up, some sort of trust built up with Daniel and his friends. So the palace master did as Daniel suggested, and at the end of those 10 days, the, those four guys looked far better than everybody else. The palace master lets them continue on this diet and at the end of three years, these, these four young men are presented to the king and we're told that, that none were found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Not just at appearance, but in every matter of wisdom and understanding, they excelled and they were found, it says, 10 times better than all the other youths. So what's going on here? We're learning the lesson that, that, that exile is an opportunity. An opportunity for what? Exile is an opportunity to make bridges to Babylon. Daniel's actions were of one who knew that he was blessed to be a blessing. He chose his battles wisely, and even though he was separated from everything that he, he knew, he made the most of the situation. He, he, he continued God's mission of blessing even in exile. We notice that, that he didn't protest the name change, but you also notice that, that the story ends with him doing everything that the king wanted him to do. The, the king had brought them there to learn, and Daniel and the boys excelled in that. None were found like them. Daniel found a way to be obedient to God He even helped the palace master look good and to do what the king had brought them there to do all the time based on this. You know what I would tell someone who told me that they felt like they were being persecuted for their faith at at school or work? I would quote the Apostle Paul who said, As far as it depends on you, live at peace with others. Daniel honored God by staying away from the king's decadent table, but, but he also honored God by acting like God was really God. All truth is God's truth. So sure, Daniel learns the wisdom of the Chaldeans. He didn't just learn it. He learned it better than everybody else. He was a model student. I mean, Have you ever had, have you ever had a teacher who like, was openly hostile to Christianity? I have. And there were times in class where I needed to stand my ground. But, but I knew if I was going to do that with integrity, I knew I needed to make sure that I was a good student doing the work that I was supposed to do. I wanted the teacher to say, boy, I, I, don't, I don't believe what he believes, but I sure wish I had more students like him. Or maybe it was just some situation on a job where your boss says, you know, I, I, I don't know if I believe what they believe, but I want to hire a whole bunch of people just like them, just like him, just like her. You know, I, I, I don't know if I believe what Christians believe, but I sure do want my daughter to marry one of them because they treat women so well. I mean, we're going to take communion now. And as you might know, the, the episode of exile continues. And it continues all the way until, I would say, biblically, all the way until Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Mark was probably the first gospel of the, of the four written. But Jesus comes out of his time wrestling in the wilderness with, with Satan himself. And he declares this. He says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Exile is over. And the kingdom, God's about to establish his rule and reign on earth as it is in heaven. And I'm calling a people to partner with me in that. I'm calling a people to be in my mission. The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The gospel is the good news that all of us are invited to dine at the table of the one true king. The, the gospel is a, is a table of, of ultimate inclusion. I mean, consider the, consider the, the, the different tables that we saw today. With, with Daniel and his friends that had to say no to this decadent table, they had to say no to this table that was only for the elite, that was only for the best and the brightest, the, the young men of promise. But, but Jesus' table, the one that we're about to, 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 to partake of together, that this is a table of ultimate inclusion. This is a table where there is no Jew nor Greek. There is no slave nor free. There is no male and female. All are one. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. So our responsibility in response to what we see Daniel doing in this, in this first, this opening. This is just a glimpse, by the way. This is just, we, we have so much to get into as we get through the book of Daniel. This is only a small little taste of what's to come but what it is is that we're looking at the season of exile in expectation because we know what God is going to do in history